If you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. By the way, I also want to give a shout out to the veterans. Um, I know Mike recognized you, but just want a personal thank you for your service and your sacrifice. Those of us who've not been in the military probably can't appreciate the, the challenges, but we do appreciate your service for all of us. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the excellencies or praises of him who called you out of darkness into his amazing, wonderful, marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. As you probably already know, we live in a very divided nation. And the presidential cycle reveals what is latent, what is already there. And we've seen for quite a number of years now this ongoing polarization in our nation, and it it appears to me that it's getting worse. the polarization is getting more and more extreme. We are divided politically, we're divided racially, we're divided economically, and we're divided spiritually. Uh, America seems to be becoming a, a country of tribes. And when you have tribes, what you have is tribal warfare. And the environment in which we currently live is becoming more and more, now this is an opinion, uh, more, it seems to be becoming more and more toxic. And what I mean by that is all you have to do is spend a day, uh, not even a day, a few hours on the Internet, and you see how toxic it is. You see how um, insulting, how angry, how afraid, how bitter many, many people are. And this is on the right and the left, conservatives and progressives. There is a lot of hatred in our country. does not bode well for the future. It's a bad omen. But the question is, what is our role? What is the church to do? Now, I don't like to talk about current events in the pulpit, but we have to at least stay enough in, in, in touch with current events so that we can minister in the culture we are in. Yeah. We have to realize, you know, we have to minister with our eyes wide open to the things around us. We have to understand what's going on so that we can speak to people who are influenced by what is going on. 
And so you will have friends and coworkers who are extreme right, extreme left, some people in the middle, some people who are heavily invested in the political process, some people that could care less. You'll meet all kinds. Um, when you look at the life of Jesus, one of the beautiful things is how he tailored the gospel to the need of the people he spoke to. The woman at the well is a perfect example, but there are many others. So Jesus never changed the message, but he tailored the message to the, to the person he was speaking with. And um, so we need to, to realize um, where people are at. Now, the reason we have this increasing tribalism in America, in my opinion, is because people live in their tribe. Uh, they live in their bubble their social bubble, their church bubble. Now, maybe you go to work with people that are in a different bubble, but you don't talk about things that will pop anybody's bubble, right? So, you know, in polite society, you don't talk about politics or religion because those things pop bubbles, right? So you really stay in your bubble. So you tend to read the news outlets that reinforce what you think. Um, you tend to read the books that reinforce what you think. And so we, we get in this thing where, people on the left cannot believe that any human being would ever vote for Donald Trump. They just don't believe anybody in the world could ever do it because they're inside a bubble where people wouldn't do it. Well, then you get people on the far right who think any, no, nobody in the right mind would ever vote for Hillary Clinton. It just could never happen. Well, what, what do you see in the results? Half the country voted for one and half the country voted for the other, of those who, of those who voted, right? Many people did not vote. The point being is that it's, it's in order for us to fulfill our mission, which I'm going to speak about in a moment, we have to be aware that the way other people think. And it's hard to be sympathetic to opposing viewpoints, especially if you believe those viewpoints are extreme. It's difficult to do, but it can be done doesn't mean agreeing, but it means listening. It means understanding. It means attempting to discern where other people are at. So as I saw events unfold this week and as I was in the Word, the Lord impressed this passage on me, which I think is a good reflection for us as we view the political and social environment uh, that we are in. And I want to mention two main things this morning as we look at this text. Number one, we need to be reminded of our identity or who we are as the people of God. That's in verses 9 and 10. And then we need to be reminded, secondly, of what we are called to do or our task. And that's in verses 11 through 17. So, We'll look at both of these this morning. First, who we are, our identity. Here's what Peter says we, the church, are. Verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Pretty high calling, amen? But then he adds in verse 11, we are also sojourners and we are pilgrims. So we have, we have five things mentioned here about the church. One, it says that we are a chosen generation, that we are elect of God. And the idea of election in the Bible has many meanings, uh, one of which is, is this idea that the elect one is valuable 
and precious or beloved. Jesus is called in the Old Testament God's elect servant. Jesus wasn't elected to be saved, right? Because he didn't need that, right? But he was precious in God's eyes, and he was valuable. But the elect servant also speaks to the fact that being chosen means you're chosen to a task or to a high calling. So the church is elect in Christ Jesus. We are beloved in the Son. We are beloved in him, and our belovedness means that we are the object of God's care and love and that he sees his people as very precious to him. But it also means that we have a calling. We are chosen not just to receive his love. We are chosen to a task and to a ministry. Also, we're called a royal priesthood. That is to say, we are elevated. Um, The church is in the eyes of God far above the earthly authorities in, on the earth. Why? Because Christ is above all authorities, and he is our head, and we are in him. It's, the word says we are seated in the heavenlies. Meditate on that for a while. He is above. I am in him. I am above. I am a royal priesthood. Now, what does a priesthood do? The priesthood serves, the priesthood ministers, the priesthood intercedes, but it does so from a position of royalty. This is true whether the church is actually oppressed and suffering or whether the church is at at any given moment in revival and, quote, being successful on the earth. It doesn't matter. Its position is unalterable because it is in Christ Jesus. Our life is hid with God in Christ. And where he is, we are. He even prayed that in John 17 to the Father, that that we would be where he is, that we might see his glory. Thirdly, we're called a holy nation. Holiness in the Bible not only means moral purity, but fundamentally, holiness means separation. We are a, a nation a people, a race, which is separate from the world. We're separate because we are called out, and we are separate because we have been exalted priests. We, we need to understand that we are different. Many of us do not like to be different. We want to fit in. We don't want to feel strange. We don't want to be criticized because we're odd. We are odd. Okay? The people of God are odd. It's the truth. In the eyes of the world. We must be odd because we're different. Now, when I say different, I don't mean we have to, you know, wear clothes that are 50 years out of date or we have to, you know, do things like that. I didn't know that was going to be funny. Um, the, the, the point is, is that our oddity should be our, our moral and spiritual quality. Our oddity should be so that people can see that something about us is different. Our oddity should be that we're the ones that don't laugh at the dirty jokes or we're the ones that aren't gossiping in the office. We're the ones that will come in early and stay late. We're the ones that work the hardest. We're the ones that are different. 
So we are a holy, we are a separate people. And it is never the mission of the church to be like the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Now we should understand the world. We can even sympathize with the world, but we are not of it. We are not like it in its values and in its fundamental belief system. Fourthly, we are his special people. It says in verse 9, now I love the King James because the King James actually says his peculiar people. His peculiar people. His special or, or a people of his own. A people that he has purchased and owns. This, of course, brings to mind the idea of redemption in the Bible where God owns his people in a special way in which he does not own others. That is to say that they, his people have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Of course, God owns all things as the sovereign Lord of the universe, but he owns his people because the, the, the blood of his son Jesus has been shed for them. If you go back to chapter 1 of Peter, Peter says this. He says, um, in verse 17 of chapter 1, he says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear or reverence, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we, we are uh, God's people by possession, by purchase, because of the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. Lastly, we're told... That we are sojourners on the earth. In verse 11, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Now, one of the challenges of being in the world but not of it is finding that balance to where you give due importance to temporal things without neglecting eternal things, or giving due prominence to eternal things without neglecting temporal things. You understand what I'm saying? Some people have to be told, you really should go out there and vote. It's important. Other people need to be told, politics isn't everything. You know what I'm saying? Because you, you, know, you have extremes on both sides. And the challenge is for us to walk in such a way that the things of the earth, the mundane things, the temporal things, receive their due attention, and that we pay attention to them in such a way that we honor God in these things. Um, yet at the same time not become immersed in them that we lose an eternal perspective, right? There's, a, there's an old criticism of the church that, that the church can be so heavenly minded it's no earthly good. Um, and we do have this. It's called pietism. And this is where we, we define our faith as simply... Um, Really, our devotional life, prayer, Bible reading. I, I read my Bible, I pray, I worship, I love, I love God. But that doesn't translate into any kind of action 
out here. Um, so it's just not easy, and for every Christian, they'll find a different place where they feel comfortable with that balance. But we can't ignore the temporal and the mundane. You have to go to work tomorrow. Sorry, I brought it up. You have to pay your bills. You have to you get what I'm saying? I mean, you can't ignore the temporal. But we have to live in such a way that we're not immersed in it to the degree that we no longer have an eternal perspective. And as it relates to current events, the, 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 as I said, every four years our, our country goes in this frenetic cycle where we believe that whatever happens at the ballot box will alter the course of human history. And for many, it's an apocalyptic event every four years. And every four years we hear, this is the end of America. We, uh, am I wrong? No, every four years, this is, no, this is the end. No, this one. I know I said it four years ago, but it's this one. I know I said it eight years ago, but it's this one. And 12 years ago, but no, it's really this one. Um, now, I'm joking as if that's not important. It is important. Okay? But again, it's got to be kept in balance. So, I think, I think the, the, what we need to do, you don't ignore the mundane. You don't ignore the temporal. But you see the temporal through the eternal. Okay? You see it through the eternal. Well, how do I get an eternal perspective? Right? We have to see things from, from the mind of God. And this is how we know the mind of God. We know it through his word. And so what's important to God is revealed here. What's, what's dear to God's heart, if you will, has been revealed here. And so we, we must learn to see every area of life, including the social, political, through the eyes of Scripture. And that's an ongoing process um, of renew, really renewing the mind. That's what Paul says in Romans. Let's read it because it's just an important text. You all know it, but we'll go back. Go to Romans 12 for a minute. I want to read it. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, excuse me, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some versions say spiritual worship. Some say your logical worship, your logical service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That you may prove or discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, if you think about this verse... You might come up with this question, well, don't I know the will of God? It's right here in the Bible. Yes and no. Because in many cases, the scripture is not specific, right? Did did, did the Bible tell you where to go to college? Does the Bible tell you who to marry? Does the Bible tell you... um, My point is, there are many, many, many decisions we make in life where we have no specific direction... What we have in Scripture are general principles. Uh, in many cases, we do have direct injunctions. I'm not saying it's all vague. My point is, but in many cases, you have to make decisions based upon 
the revelation in Scripture, which is not specific. It doesn't say, wear a red tie today. Take this job and not that job. So you weigh these things. You pray. But Paul's point is, the more you renew your mind, um, especially now that we have the the canon that that even Paul didn't have. (laughs) He didn't have everything we have. We renew our minds according to the word as the Holy Spirit renews us and teaches us and helps us see the temporal through the eyes of the eternal, that is, through the word of God. And then we can make wise decisions. So who we are, we are God's people. We are not man's. We are not Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or green, greeners. What do they call people in the Green Party? Greenies? That, that rhymes with something I'm not going to say in the pulpit. Um, uh, so we're not, first of all, a political party. We're not, first of all, a tribe. We're not, first of all, a, a, our identity isn't rooted in our local church. It's not rooted in our family. We are, first of all, the people of God. We're bought by Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that because the danger is that we put our hope in man and not in God. I want to read Jeremiah 17 with, to you. If you want to join me, you can turn there. Jeremiah 17. Part of this is well known. One of the verses here is well known, but... It's the verses around the well-known verse I want, to, I want to point out. Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, it says this. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Now notice, before we go on, notice that, that, he's, that he says trusting in man means you're, you're, you're departing from God. You're drifting from God. You're putting your hope in the wrong place. In contrast, verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river. It will not fear when he comes, but its leaf will be green. It will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord, and who put their trust in the Lord and not in man. It it doesn't, you know, I've been around long enough. That, that when Jimmy Carter ran from office, you all heard the name Jimmy Carter? Okay. Some of you are like too young, and I, I get that. Jimmy Carter got elected by, by evangelicals overwhelmingly. You know why? Because he said, I'm born again. Now, I think Jimmy Carter is doing many, many good things, but he was not a really very good president. No, he wasn't. I mean, histor- historians will, you know, he probably wasn't cut out for the job. It's nothing to do with his you know, moral character or his spiritual character. But my point is, is that when, when Christians heard that, that, that he's uh, born again, well, they just, boom. Okay? And, and it's, it's a putting of trust in man. 
If, if we think that putting our man or our woman in the Oval Office is going to really change the course of history, we're putting our hope in man. We need to put our hope in God. We are God's people. We're called by him. We are uh, separated by him. We are owned by him. And we are to put our hope in him. So whether your candidate got in or out, maybe you didn't even vote, maybe you don't care, I don't know because everybody's different. But the thing we need to understand is we need to put our trust in the arm of the Lord and not the arm of flesh. My second point, what we should do, our task. I, I could preach on this for weeks. I just want to mention quickly a couple of things. Back to our text in Peter. After Peter says who we are, then he, he challenges us in verse 11. And he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the kings and supreme or to the governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. First of all, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of God. He says, in, he says this in verse 9, that... We are his own special people that you may proclaim or, or declare the virtues or excellencies or praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our, our main calling is to communicate to the world the glory of God in his son, Jesus Christ. This is our main mission. Okay? All other things are subordinate to this. We do this in worship. We do this in evangelism. We do this in how we live our lives how we raise our children. We do it in many ways. But we are to be thinking how we can exalt God and His Son, Jesus Christ. We do this in our... So we do it through worship. We do it through our lifestyle. Well, we do it through evangelism. The more I contemplate the gospel, the more I'm amazed at the wisdom of God. How God contrived a way that He could be just and yet merciful how God contrived a way that he could save us in and from our sin. And so we see the wisdom of God displayed in the gospel. We see his justice displayed. We see his love displayed, his mercy displayed, his patience displayed. And the more you contemplate the gospel, you see the glorious attributes of God displayed in the gospel. And then you see the beauty of Jesus Christ, his great love the, the, the stupendous sacrifice that he made, his humility and condescension that he would become a man, and not only that, but die on the, on the cross of a criminal for those who hated him. Astounding love. Astounding, amazing humility that Jesus would do that for people who hated him. So the more we, we declare the gospel, the more we declare the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness. Secondly, we're called to live honorably. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter says to live honorably, but he first says this. He says, abstain from worldly lusts um, that war against the soul. And then he says, having your conduct honorable. Why does he do this? Because if you don't clean up the inside, you're not going to clean up the outside. 
one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of, we, we Christians who almost always think we're right, is this. Reform begins at home. Revival begins at home. When, when you, when you, let me say this right. I probably won't, but I don't, I don't want to uh, unnecessarily offend anybody. I don't mind necessarily offending anybody. It's just unnecessarily. That's the problem. Okay. Um, it's pretty clear that the evangelical church in America has lost its credibility. Am I right? Okay. Right. Well, there's reasons for that. Okay. Some, some of the most prom, many of the most prominent preachers in America have all been exposed for adultery and embezzlement and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Okay. Um, in other words, they weren't absta- abstaining from the flesh of the lust, and that worked its way out. They didn't live honorably, and so it brings our faith into ridicule. Um, when you have uh, Christians in government who, who will profess Christ to get an office and then they um, divorce their wives and they, they cheat on their spouse, they do, you lose credibility. Another way we lose credibility is we don't, we don't um, live honorably. We're just not living honorably um, in front of people. And they see that, and yet, and yet then they hear the church preaching to them about how to live. You know what that's called, right? Yeah. And when you talk to people, you, you hear this objection all the time. Now, the hypocrisy thing is, is true and false, depending on the people and all that. But the point is, there's enough truth there that you can't say, oh, no, that's not true. I've seen it. I've even done it. I violated the, in my heart, if not in my actions, things that I believe. I don't even live up to my own ideals because I'm a sinner. I constantly need grace. I constantly need to repent. I constantly need to confess. Uh, the church would do well to have a little bit of humility. Someone said a lot. Okay, I agree with you. The church would do well to have a lot of humility. As we, as we preach to the world, as we say we are representing God in our pronouncements, we need to realize that, okay, if you're going to speak for God, then I'm going to take a look at how you live. And when you look at the social indicators of, of professing Christians in America, they don't look that different from the world. Whether it's the divorce rate, pornography use, go down the line. It's, the church isn't that different. So why should they listen to us? I don't know why they should. So we're called to proclaim his excellency, but we can't do that effectively if we're not living honorably. So revival begins at home, okay? Many of you are true patriots. Many of you care about this nation. Many of you want to see reform and change. And, 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 I, and I want to see it too. But we must be careful that we take care of business at home first. Okay? We need to take care of our hearts. We need to take care of our family. We need to take care of our relationships. 
with people, and then we can speak with integrity. You hear me? And you know what? If every Christian took care of their stuff, it would be amazing how the nation would change. Thirdly, Paul says, submit to authority. I keep on saying Paul because... Oh, Peter, excuse me. In 13 through um, 14. And he's basically agreeing with what Paul does say in Romans 13 and other texts, and we don't have time to look at that. But the point is, is that we are not to be anarchists. Um, We can be a loyal opposition, but we're not to... to, um, um, be revolutionaries. Lastly, he says, honor all. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Um, this is something that I'm not sure we do very well anymore in our society in general. If you look at the political discourse and even just the general uh, conversation you hear, uh, magazines, popular magazines, radio, it, it's getting more and more co- coarse and vulgar. Am I right on that? This election cycle is particularly brutal, and um, it, it uh, yeah, it was it was bad. We are called to honor all. Peter says, and this word honor means to esteem them, to respect them. It means to value them. Now that's hard to do, not only when you disagree with people, but when you actually don't respect them. It's hard to respect people who are living in ways that are unrespectable. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's easy to respect somebody you actually respect. But that's a challenge. Especially when you're dealing with, I mean, when Paul, was, when Peter says, <laughs> I might get it right by the time I'm done. Probably not. Okay. When Peter says, honor all, and then he goes on, he says, honor the king. He's not, the king, the king wasn't saved. The king, during Peter's time, wasn't saying, I'm a born-again Christian, vote for me. Okay? He was a pagan. He was a tyrant. He was uh, not a good guy. Yet, Peter says, honor him. So how do you do this? You honor the office. You don't honor the man or the woman. You honor the office. When you... When you drive down the street and you see a policeman standing in the road and he's holding his arm up because of, of traffic like this, you stop. Well, some of you stop. No, it's kidding. You stop. What, does he have some magical power that makes your car stop? No. How does he get your car to stop? It's the badge. Right? It's what, he, what the uniform of the badge represents. It's the position. You honor the position. Why? Because as... as Peter tells us to, to um, submit to every man's ordinance, but Paul tells us that all authorities are ordained by God. Now, that's, that's very troubling when you think about some of the people that are in office. But the point is, you honor the office. That's the only way you can do it. Um, so... This is very hard to do. Especially when you don't respect the individual, when you 
disagree with the individual, but we are called to honor all, and specifically we're called to honor the king. Of course, we don't have kings in this country, but we have magistrates, we have what we call politicians, we have people in office who we are to honor. Um, we, we are called as Christians to honor God. We're called to honor our employers. We're called to honor our parents. We're called to honor our spouses. We're called to honor our elders. And we're called to honor widows. In fact, we're told to honor the weakest members of the body. But we're also called to honor magistrates. And we are to do this because we are called to honor the position that God has ordained, whether we respect the person or not. And I say this, especially, in, and I, I'm stressing this, especially in light of the vitriol and the hatred and the bitterness that we've seen in this election cycle. Um, we are not of the world. That doesn't mean we don't engage. It doesn't mean we don't care but it means we don't act like the world acts. And what the world does is the world shames, the world bullies, the world slanders, the world criticizes, the world hates. I was reading through, I read an article last night, I was reading through some of the comments, and that's a scary thing to do. I mean, to read comments on news articles is just a frightening thing to do. And the, the, the hatred, there's no other word for it. That is, just, that is just pouring out into the, the social air we're breathing. Okay? is phenomenal. We are not to breathe that air. The stream is being poisoned and we are not to drink that water. As much as we may not like those who are governing, whether it's people governing in state or home or church, we are never permitted to slander. It is a violation of God's word. We can criticize policies, we can disagree with positions, but we are not called to attack people. We are not called to slander people. We are to be separate. We are to be different. This is hard to do when the opposition is hating you and slandering you and calling you names and saying you're a racist or a bigot or you're this or you're that. It's very hard to do. But let me just say this to the church. If we can't walk through this now, what will we do when real persecution comes? What will we do? I just so happened providentially to watch a documentary on the Nazis the other night. And it struck me how irresponsible it is when people in politics refer to this group, well, they're like the Nazis. They're like the communists. They're, uh, it is utterly irresponsible to say things like that because they're, they're false, and they, they diminish the suffering of millions and millions and millions of people who actually lived under Nazis and lived under the communists. You hearing me? So we as the people of God need to not join the chorus of hate. 
Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, Pastor, you're going soft. I'm going with the Bible. Honor all. Honor the king. Thus saith the Lord. And I'm going to bother some of you, but this is probably necessary. Or it says unnecessary. Uh, you don't get a free pass on Twitter. You don't get a free pass on Facebook. You, you, there is no uh, area where just because you're alone and, and think you have anonymity for you to publish hatred, to slander people. And Jesus said that we will be judged for every idle word that we speak. And that means everything we type, everything we tweet, and everything we put out there that affects our fellow man will be accountable. So we need to do some, we the church, this church, the church, all of us, myself included, we need to do some, some heart searching on how much we're giving into hatred and the, the, the bitter fruits of that being slander and accusation and uh, prejudice. You know, we have stereotyped people. If you voted for that person, then you're this, 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 and this. And yet you, you don't know that. You just don't know that. That kind of thinking breeds more and more hatred, more and more division. We are the people of God, my friends. We are different, and we have a solution to the hatred. And it's called the gospel of Jesus. We have the gospel. If you love the nation, preach the gospel to your friends. If you love the nation, share the gospel with your family members. Because the only thing that will heal the wounds of this nation, uh, the only thing is the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses from sin. Jesus Christ is the solution to so much division, so much hatred. I determined many, many months ago when uh, the election, the primary, even when the primaries began, I was not going to give in to hate. And it's been a lot of work. It has been. Because it's being fed to me on television, it's being fed to me uh, on blogs, on, on uh, the internet. It, I'm being fed hatred and anger. Let us not drink from that bitter water. Amen? In conclusion, James says, <clears throat> But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Listen to this. With it, meaning our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with our tongue we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? 
The answer, of course, is no. The point being, if bitter words are coming out of your mouth, hateful words are coming out of your mouth, it's revealing your heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. The fingers type. The thumbs tweet. Out of the heart. So let us be the people of God, amen? And let us be about what we're called to do, to declare the glory of God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's live according to that same gospel. Let's be agents of healing as well as agents of reform and change. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your word so precious, so valuable, so beautiful, so cleansing. Lord, as we meditate on your word, I just, I just feel the... the the uh, effects of all the demagoguery and the hatred and the bitterness in our culture and are just being cleansed from my mind. We just thank you. Help us to renew our minds according to your word. Help us to live according to your word. Help us to preach your word. Jesus, help us as your church to live honorably so that we would honor you and so that we would draw men and women to you. And we ask this for Jesus' sake, Jesus' sake and his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.